Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to finish the book of 2 Thessalonians tonight, and we'll be moving into 1 Samuel next week, which will be a left turn, but a so much fun. <clears throat> really fun book to study through. So this letter of 2 Thessalonians, as you know, it's been addressing issues that have come back to Paul about the people that have been going to the church in Thessalonica, that there had been some letters that had been circulating that were apparently sent by Paul, but were not. And they said things like, hey, uh, Jesus came and gone and you missed it. Or, um, hey, Jesus is coming back November 6th. And, and so there was issues going on in the church. And so Paul is writing this letter, trying to correct those issues, correct issues that are still ongoing. And so he's concluding, and the idea is this, that for the Christians who are still in Thessalonica, Jesus has not come yet, but he's coming soon. And until Jesus comes soon, you're to occupy the territory, almost like... Um, like a force would occupy a territory waiting for reinforcements to come. You're to occupy a territory that darkness wants. And you and I, we know we're not, when you get accepted by Jesus, when you accept Jesus into your life, you're a member of this world anymore. That you're considered an ambassador from another world. That you belong to Christ's kingdom. And so while we're on earth, we're to occupy territory and push back darkness and keep evil at bay. Like you guys know, <clears throat> August 1944, D-Day, that was the event that turned the tides of World War II. When D-Day happened, the tides were turned and everyone knew, every, all historians say that is when the enemy lost. But it wasn't until a full year later that there was still wars and still battles and still pain and still people dying. It wasn't until a full year later that the war ended. For you and me, Jesus kicked sin and death's teeth in on the cross. And it was right then the tide was decided that Jesus won. But until then, until the day comes that Jesus comes back, you and I are to push back against darkness and occupy territory. Yeah, there's still sin that we struggle with. Yeah, there's still evil things that happen. There's still wickedness in this world, but we're to push back against darkness. Jesus says of his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive so Christians are supposed to be on the offense, pushing back against darkness. That's who we're called to be. So this letter of 2 Thess Thessalonians, Paul is saying, as Jesus followers, we're called to occupy the territory. And here are some things that you do while you're occupying the neighborhood, the community, the world that you're living in today until Jesus returns. <clears throat> so 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, let's read. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So the first thing Paul says is, hey, would you guys pray for us? Do you know that every single religion, every single system towards enlightenment, it all says, hey, you should pray. You should meditate. Because it's in prayer and it's in meditation that, you, that you're going to seek 
enlightenment. You're going to seek hope. You're going to seek correction, power, assistance, direction. It's in that all religions say, hey, you need to find those things. Prayer's the way that you get to it. So all religions have the same departure spot, all the same place that they're leaving from, but they have a drastically different destination depending on what you believe about God and the steps that you take in your prayer. So like my brother lives in Eugene and I don't know his address, but imagine it's one, two, three Harbeck. Okay. So one, two, three Harbeck, Eugene. And he, uh, he's got an interview all the way up in Seattle. So he gets in his car, he types in the address for the, the interview place and he drives up to Seattle. He's listening to music. He's having a good time. It's a four hour drive, almost even four hours gets there long interview process. He finds out that day that he got the job. So he's loading computers into his car because it's at home job with COVID and, and they're giving him all this stuff, but he starts tomorrow morning. So you better head home. You better plug all this stuff in, make sure it works, get plenty of rest because you're starting tomorrow. My brother's like, awesome. So he gets in his car. He types in one, two, three, Harbeck. And you know how it kind of autofills sometimes? Well, he types in one, two, three, Harbeck. <clears throat> it kind of autofills. He's like, boom. And he sees there's an option that's 20 minutes shorter. He's like, I get to shave 20 minutes off this and it's back road area. I get to see some stuff I didn't see on the way here. Awesome. He clicks it. He's like me. That's it. We're done. So he's turned on some music and he's just driving, having a good time. And um, if you've ever driven, like I go to the coast often, you go through that border checkpoint and they always ask the same thing. You pull up and they go, do you have any fruits in the car? You know, and if my brother's in the car, I say just him, but otherwise, no. You know, right? No, no fruit in the car. And then they let you through. So my brother's coming up to the border checkpoint, expecting the same thing. You just, hey, do you have any fruit in the car? He'll say, no, get going his way. Well, he pulls up, and the guy goes, where are you coming from? My brother goes, e Eugene, Oregon. Go, okay. Where are you headed? My brother's like, Eugene, Oregon. And the guy goes, What? And he goes, I'm heading, to, I'm heading home, dude. I'm going to Eugene. He goes, where do you think you are right now? Uh, Oregon? And he goes, dude, you're in Canada. He went north. And get this. They made him get out of the car, and they had a dog sniff the vehicle because they're like, there's no way you make that mistake sober. <laughs> so what happened? He got in his car. He had the right departure spot. But he took the wrong roads, had some bad info, and got to the wrong destination. It's really, really important that you know what roads you're going to take, right? You know, so for me, what I believe the most important thing about you is not how beautiful you are, your sense of humor, how much money you have, what your job is. What's most important about you is what you believe about God, because that directs everything in life. That directs how you see people, how you view suffering. It directs where you put your money. And it's really revealed in how you pray. How you pray is going to show, okay, what do I really think about God? Because there's, there's a lot of views. You could have, even with just the Christian God, you could have a view with him of where he's your boss. You have a boss relationship with God. Like, I'm going to do the, the right things. I'm going to complete the project. I'm going to do these things. So God, you owe me some compensation here. I do good, so you're going to bless me with good stuff. And if I do bad things, Lord, please don't fire me. I'll do better next time. A lot of us have a year-end review coming up because we made a lot of promises New Year's Eve of last year, and we haven't quite made what we were supposed to do. Is it just me? I've got two months to go to the gym. I haven't given up yet. 
But if you have a boss relationship with God, that's how it is. God, I do good things, so I deserve good things. A lot of people could have a, a view of God as he's this magic genie. If you know the right words to say, if you've got the right phrases, if you, if you use the right lingo, then God has to grant you your wish and God has to do these things for you. Or your view of God could be that he's this cosmic, indifferent, distant force. And it doesn't really matter how you live. He doesn't really care. So why would you pray to him? What you believe about God is definitely going to dictate the course that you take, the roads you take as you pray to God, and it's going to drastically change your destination. If, if you pray like Jesus prays, because Jesus gives you and I a roadmap, hey, this is the way to approach your father. If you pray like Jesus prays, if you look at God, if you believe about God, what Jesus says to believe about God, your life, it has to change. It's going to be drastically changed because what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. So before we look at that real quick, I just want to ask if you self-evaluate, how do you pray? Like, are you someone where you pray and, and, and it's, um, hey, man, I messed up. Um, God, I'm so sorry. Please don't send me to hell. Cover me with your blood. Amen. Okay, good till next time. Or is it, um, hey, Jesus, stuff is really hard right now. Will you come and help me? Um, and then when things are easy, I'll take over again. But just kind of get me back on the right path, and, and then, then we don't have to talk anymore. Or you could be like me, the majority of my life, where the only time I prayed, the only time I worshipped, the only time that I opened my Bible was when I came to church with my parents, and we did it as a group. That, that I would live vicariously my faith through the pastor, through my parents, and say, well, this is when I pray. This is when we read the Bible. This is when we worship. That's, I was there for a really, really long time. So Jesus, he gives us this roadmap. Real quick, I just want to share with you. It's Matthew chapter 6. I think it helps direct at least my thought process for the rest of this chapter. Um, it's not Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. He's, he's going over... Praying to the Lord isn't to get God to bend to your will, isn't get others to think how amazing you are. This is how you pray to God. And he shares this, this simple thing. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, this is the approach, this is the access that you have to God, that you get to approach God as your Father. Not everyone on earth has had a good father. And so Jesus gives an example of what a good father, what God the Father is really like in a parable where he shares with the, good, um, the, prodigal, the prodigal son, where there's a, a man, there's a boy who says to his dad, hey, dad, I want my inheritance. When do your kids get their inheritance? When you're dead. So he's saying, hey, dad, I don't want your experience. I, I don't want your wisdom. I, I don't want to do life with you. I don't want your relationship. I don't want guidance. I just want your stuff. God, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I just want your blessings. I just want the good things. So that's what this guy says to God, to the father. And the father gives him the inheritance. He goes out into the world and he just squanders it, just lives crazily, just, just abuses everything that he can. And then he's sleeping outside. He's eating food with pigs. And he just goes, man, I've blown it. Dang it. I, should, I wish I had never left the comfort of my dad's home. There's no way he'll ever want me back. How could he ever want me back? I just blew my inheritance. I just, I, I told him, I don't want anything to do with you. There's no way he'll ever want me back. And so he goes over in his head. He's, he decides, maybe, maybe I could work my way back into his favor. Maybe I can earn my way. Maybe I can prove myself. Maybe he'll even just take me as a slave and I'll just get to at least have a warm meal and a cozy bed. 
And so he starts walking home, rehearsing in his head what he's going to say to his dad. And when he comes over the hill, his dad sees him and he's, he's processing, dad, I'm super sorry. There was these things that happened. There's a lot of circumstances, a lot was going on. But what happens is his dad sees him and just rushes to him with open arms to embrace him. And he says, my son who is dead is now alive, who is lost is now found. We have to throw a party. We have to kill the fatted calf. How exciting is this? It's like he was never gone. It's, it's better than if he was ever gone. It's like he was dead and is now alive. Jesus says that your father's like that. That yeah, we've made mistakes. That yeah, sin has hurt us. That there's lots of things we wish that we could undo. But our God doesn't say, well, you know, you can earn it back. Well, you know, you can regain your footing with me, your place with me. It's if you turn to our father, he will graciously and generously bring you back in. Welcome. That's the kind of access you have to this, to our God is he wants to, you to approach him, not as a slave, not as a worker, but as a son and as a daughter. And he says, hallowed be your name. That we don't have a distant, impersonal God we, that's just this vague outer force. We have a God that has a name, who wants to know you and to be known by you. A God who reveals himself through scripture as a God being merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that God wants his people to know him by his name and by his character. If you really believe that, if you really believe that about God, doesn't that change everything for you? Like if you really believe that by accepting Jesus, you get adopted into God's family, doesn't that change everything? Like that you're not like just born into God's family, like it was the luck of the draw, but that God chose you, that he wanted you, that God would give up anything for you, even his own life. How could you ever look at yourself and think, well, you're just, you're, you're ugly, you're gross, you're broken, you're messed up, you're, you're unloved. No way. If you really believe that, that God wants you, doesn't that change everything? If you really believe that God wants the people in your life that are causing you the most frustration, doesn't that change the way that you look at them, that you want them to get to know their father so that, that God can change their life the way that he's changed yours? Doesn't it change everything? So God says your approach, your access to God is unlike any other religion, any other system, you get to approach him as a father. And second, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Old Testament, they just call this the fear of the Lord. Recognize that God is God and I am not. That the world isn't all about me, but that God's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and I get to fit into that plan and purpose. But people aren't here to get leveraged by me to get my will accomplished. And that my personal possessions and that the power I can accumulate isn't to build my own kingdom, but it's to build God's kingdom. You see this emulated by Jesus, lived out by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, hey, I don't want to die. I don't want to go to the cross, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. That that's the attitude the believer is supposed to have, looking at the world going, okay, God, I want you to change my heart so the things that you want, I want. I want you to, to change my heart so I want the things that you want. Break my heart for the things that break your heart. Soften me in the areas that need to be softened. And the parts of me that get irritated and angry with my brother, help me break those things and help me see them the way that you see them. The Old Testament would call that the fear of the Lord. And Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. 
asking. This is normally where I start. I normally start my conversations with God with, hey, God, will you help me? God, I've messed up. I need you to fix it. God, my wife is being mean to me, and I need you to talk to her. Some people felt that. <laughs> God, I need you to come and fix this for me. Help me. That's normally where I start. But Jesus is saying, don't start there. First, start by, no, by acknowledging who your God is. Your God wants you. Your God wants to bring you in. Your God wants to give you every good gift. If, Jesus, if God wouldn't even withhold his own son from you, he's not going to withhold any good thing from you. Recognize that it's not all about you and that you've got a, a, a spot in God's plan, but the world isn't all about you. It's about getting God's kingdom to come and that you want your heart to be shaped to look like Jesus's heart. And once you've thought those things through, they kind of refine some of the things you ask for. So the things you're praying for, Jesus, I want, I want what, what you want. Jesus, help me ask for the things that you want me to ask for. Jesus, give me what I need to get through the day. And then there's this really interesting line where it says, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Isn't that a high bar? Jesus, will you forgive me in the same measure that I've forgiven the person that's hurt me the most? That's a high bar, isn't it? Jesus, will you forgive me like I have forgiven those who have hurt me? It's really easy for us to say, oh, I've forgiven that person. You know you've forgiven that person when you could go to God on their behalf and pray the very best for them. When you think about the things that you want to ask God for in your life and you pray for them to have those things, God, will you give him wisdom? God, will you give him success? God, will you give him patience? God, will you help him in his career? Like Jesus, when he's on the cross, when he's getting beaten and mocked and brutalized and he's taking his last breaths, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know you've truly forgiven someone when you could go to God on their behalf and pray for them. And finally, Jesus just says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He prays for deliverance. God, the stuff that is wrong, that's evil, that's tempting, keep it from me. Keep me on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. Every other religion has the same departure. Hey, you need to pray to get enlightenment and hope and joy and peace and guidance. But your destination where you end up is going to be very different depending on how you view God. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Have this view of God. Have this mind about who you are in Jesus, about how your place in the world is, what you should ask for and what you should ask to be delivered from. Have this mind about you as you pray. And so Paul, he says, I want you to pray for me. God's people, when they pray, I want you to pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. He uses this, this Old Testament terminology, this word of the Lord, which for me, whenever you're reading and, and someone says, this is this, this is the word of the Lord. They're going to come and get you. This is the word of the Lord. For me, when I read that, I go, oh, that's just how it is. It's going to happen then because God says that it's done. It's interesting to me that it says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, that there's a way that we get to participate in how God's word gets spread and received by people. Paul's not in town, but people in a different town, in a different city, get to pray for the ministry that he's doing. And Paul is convinced that it's going to have effect there, that it's going to change things, that when we pray to God, it actually has power. 
It's super interesting to me that our prayers get to have an apparent impact on how God's word spreads. I think God wants us to have a mind about ourselves that we're constantly in prayer about our neighbors, about our community, about the communities around us, and about our world. And I think he wants us to be people who have eyes that are willing to see what God is doing, willing to see God's work happening, that we shouldn't be a group of passive people, but a group of people who are excited to see God move. If you're actively praying, God, I want to see your word moved in my community, I think you'll start to have eyes for it. You'll be ready to see when stuff is happening and then ready to engage and participate in it. Jesus has chosen the church to be the mechanism that he is going to use to change the world. He wants us to be a group of people who are looking for opportunities to jump in with him. Matt showed a video years ago of a group of people throwing a basketball to each other. And you were supposed to count how many times the basketball was passed. And in the middle of that video, a gorilla comes and beats on his chest and then walks out. And then when you ask, okay, how, how many times does the basketball get thrown? All the men go, 15! And then you go, how, how many of you saw the gorilla? And they go, there's no gorilla. Because your eyes weren't on it. But then the second time when you're watching it, all you can see is the gorilla. I think sometimes in life, we can get so fixated on the stuff that we think we're supposed to be looking out for, how the stock market is doing, what a president is doing, what our coworkers are doing, what our spouse is up to, what are, what, what's going on in the education system that we might miss what God is doing. But if we're people who are in constant prayer, God, I want to see your word move forward. I want to see you do something amazing. Then I think you have eyes for what God is doing. I think sometimes God wants his people to pray so he can say, okay, watch me work now. Okay, I want you to see what I'm doing now. I want you to see my kingdom come. There's so much power in prayer, and we get to approach God as our Father. How are we people who aren't constantly in prayer? We have to be people who are praying without ceasing. But so Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and then that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. uh, Paul has been actively oppressed and opposed by a a group of people that's fierce in in Thessalonica. That they not only chased him out of Thessalonica, but also out of the neighboring town. If you know Paul's story, he's been beaten. He's been killed successfully once. He's been like everything they could do to this guy to get him to stop talking about Jesus, they've done to him. There's some serious wicked men after Paul. And there's some serious evil power after Paul. Like there's a whole demonic force that wants to stop and spread God's word going out. And that just sounds so scary. Like that just sounds so dark and overwhelming. And and, oh my gosh, doesn't that just sound like a lot? But get verse three. But the Lord is faithful. Whenever we're stressed, or overwhelmed, or scared about what's going on in the world, scared about things that are outside of our control, our mind needs to always go, but God. Oh yeah, no, I remember who's on my side, and he who's for me is greater than he who's in the world. Oh yeah, no, but God. But God is faithful. Even when I'm unfaithful, even when I'm not doing well, God is faithful. God still sees me as his son. You keep away from verse two things when they're stressing you out by focusing on verse three, when you trust in God, when you trust in him as your hope. 
Verse three says, who will establish you and guard you against the evil one? Jesus will. In chapter two, it, it spent a lot of time talking about this antichrist figure, this big, scary, demonic force. Oh no. And then it just casually brings up and Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. Never forget how powerful our God is, that the scariest thing that the enemy can conjure up, Jesus one day will go, yeah, I'm done. And it's over. Bye-bye. It's not an issue for our God. Jesus isn't staying up late at night going, what am I going to do? Oh, no. Jesus kicked the enemy's teeth in on the cross. And it's been decided. Jesus is king. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you and I get access to him freely. And the enemy right now, all he can do is try to hold territory while believers in Christ Jesus continue to push back against darkness in our community. And one of our biggest weapons in that is prayer. God, I want to see you move. God, I want to see you change my neighbor's marriage. God, I want to see you just fix my neighborhood. Help me be a piece of that. Show me how, what words I'm supposed to speak. Help me to see when I'm supposed to be talking to them. How can I invite them over? All that sort of stuff. God, I want to see this community changed. And so verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So there's always this tension, right? Like God is doing something, pray to God and God is going to do that. But there's also this, but you need to follow his commands. There's a tension there. God do, then you do. Jesus is calling people to faithful obedience to him because he really, he knows what's best for us. That the reason that God tells us to do things isn't because God wants to be oppressive or domineering or overbearing, but because he actually knows this is what's right and this is what you should do and this is what's going to lead to joy. I think sometimes the church in the past has made way too narrow the gospel. Like if you were to write down on a piece of paper, what is the gospel? You might write, it was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, sure, but that's just a part of the gospel. That the gospel in its whole is this, that there was a gospel of Caesar. Uh, the word gospel isn't just exclusive to the Bible. There was a gospel of Caesar. What happened when Caesar became king, when he took office, messengers went to all the cities and all the towns proclaiming, hey, you got a new king. There's new ways of doing things. Don't send your taxes to the old guys. We're going to be doing things different around here. The education system is different. The way you talk to people is different. The way that you do things is different. And they went everywhere sharing this gospel. You've got a new king. You've got a new way of doing life. You're not able to do things the old way if you have a new king. Life isn't going to work that way. The gospel is you have a new king. And that new king, he's got ways that he wants you to follow him. And all of those things, like I said, aren't to be oppressive or domineering, but because they lead to your joy. Like Jesus tells us to love our wives a certain way. And that can be hard. A 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love is self-sacrificial, patient, difficult, hard, but it leads to joy. If you love your wife the way Jesus tells you to love your wife, it leads to joy. It leads to joy. I don't know what you're thinking. This is church. No, but it leads to good things. If you love your kids the way that Jesus wants you to love your kids, it's going to lead to joy. 
A lot of dads that I talk to, they want to get off work and they clock out of work and then they also want to clock out of home. And, and that's not what Jesus wants for you. That a dad gets to clock out when the kids have teeth brushed and they've been prayed for and they're in bed. And that's when dads get to clock out. And then at the end of your life, right now, that's hard, that's difficult, that's frustrating, it's irritating, it's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of long suffering. But later in life, that's going to bring you so much joy, that kind of investment in your kids. It's going to bring great conversations that your kids need to have with their dad. The things right now that even are hard, if you follow Jesus's commands, you follow what God wants for you, it always leads to, do to joy. What the Bible says about Jesus is he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Obeying God's commands, even when it's hard, when it's difficult, we don't understand it, when we don't want to, it will always lead to joy. Obeying Jesus will never lead to no joy. It always leads to the fullness of life, fullness of joy. And so there's two major concerns that Paul's been writing on. The first has been, Jesus came already. No, he hasn't. Jesus is coming soon. But the second is there's been people in the church who have decided, you know, I'm just not going to work anymore. You know, if, if Jesus is coming tomorrow, then I, I don't want to go move the sheep. You know, I don't want to go shear them. If Jesus is coming in a month, well, man, we, we can just sell our, all our stuff and, and live hard for a month. You know, this will be great. We, we could live to the fullness of life right now. And Paul is saying, hold on, don't do that. Don't take advantage of people. Don't take advantage of the church. You need to actually be living life today like Jesus isn't, like Jesus is coming tomorrow, but planning like he's not. So verse six, this is what Paul picks up with. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to imitate, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we toil. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Why would I work? Why would I, why would I clean my house? if Jesus is just coming back next week? Why would I invest in, in stuff if Jesus is just coming back soon? Jesus, Paul, is saying we need to live life in the way that we forgive people, in the way that we're generous to our neighbor. We need to live life today like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. But we need to plan like he's not. We need to forgive like Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but we need to be wise like he's not. So what does God want us to do? The Bible, I think it always has this principle. It always gives a really great principle of you get when you give. We have an exceptionally generous God. Like in Luke, it says, give and it shall be given to you. If you give a cup of cold water to a kid, Jesus just does not forget it. If you want to reap rewards in heaven, I've got a volunteering opportunity for you. <laughs> If you give a cup of cold water to a kid, Jesus is not going to forget that. Jesus will reward you for that. This is how incredibly generous our God is, that every time you say the name Jesus, 
the book of Malachi says, that it's written down in heaven in a book of remembrance. The bar is so low. Our God is that generous. Our God is that actively willing and excited to reward his people. It's kind of like Jesus when he feeds the 5,000. It's not about his people saying, hey, you know, this is all we got. It's, hey, Jesus, I want you to take everything I have. It's not, I don't have enough. It's take everything I got. However much it is, whatever you, whatever you give, you're going to get. And so some things to take away from this is, I don't, it's warning you and me from hanging around idle people, people who are walking opposite of the way that God is calling them to walk, who are living in disorder. It's saying, hey, if you have a brother who knows what is right and they're choosing to not live that way, that there is a time that you step back from that. Because you've probably heard this before, you'll be the av- you will end up being the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You ever heard that before? The people you spend the most time with, you will start to look like them and be the average of them. So have you ever done something stupid because of the people you were around? In Williams, my buddy Chris Heisner grew up on a property that was all flat. And we had six high school boys over. I was one of them. And us six high school boys got in his truck and we're just rallying around the field, having a great time. And we found, cause his dad had a bunch of junk cars everywhere. We found a door of a car, which is pretty cool when you're a high schooler. So we got a rope and we tied the door of the car to the hitch of the truck. And we called it hick boarding. This is what hicks, this is what hicks do. So we tied it to the back of the truck and this was the game. You would ride on the door of this car for as fast as you could without falling off. That was the game. What we didn't think through is what happens if your foot falls into where the window used to be? What happens if your hand were to go in front of where the door is? Bad things, right? But high schoolers don't think about this at all. So the game, we're going, we're having fun. We got, I think, um, a man named Nathan Scherer, he works at a different church. We got him going 32 miles an hour. And then he hit a berm and flew off couldn't get his hands up. So it's all face in the mud and in the grass. He had braces at the time. So I vividly remember just like grass in braces. And we're like, oh, Nathan, are you okay? He's like, I'm fine. Chris, it's your turn. Like just next guy up. Dude, I remember I've done a lot of things that I go, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that because the people we, I was around, the group I was with said, this is what we're doing. You go, that sounds like a pretty cool idea. It does say in 2 Thessalonians 15, do not, 2 Thessalonians 3.15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So right now, Paul is, is saying, hey, if there's people who are living contrary to what they know they should be doing, contrary to the commands of Jesus, you step away from that person. If you're someone who's good with conflict, if you're someone who can encourage a brother, who can lift him up and say, hey, you need to change the way you're talking to your wife. You need to change the way that you're taking advantage of those people. You need to change the way you do business. You need to change the way that you're doing these things because God wants so much more for you and you know it, then you should engage that person in that way. But otherwise, hanging out with them when they're in the middle of that stuff, it could be perceived as validation. I'm just validating you. Hey, we can hang out. We're still having a good time. We don't have to talk about the sin. We don't have to talk about the issues. We don't have to go through any of that. Paul is saying, if there's people in this church, it was people taking advantage of other members of the church who are doing that, knowing that it's wrong. 
He's addressed in the letter. Don't do it anymore. If they continue to, to do it, it's time to back away from him. It's time to give them some space, time to make them be ashamed about that and say, you know what, maybe I do need to change things to be brought back into the fold. They're not an enemy. They're still a brother. So not to be totally shut out and unforgiveness. No, they're, they're, there's room for reconciliation and redemption and being brought back in. And the second thing Paul says is to be an example. Notice how Paul just brings up how much he did, how he worked. Be like me. Do the things that I did. Look at the way that I worked. Look at the way that I served. Look at the way that I conducted myself. Live the, through the example that I gave you. If you want to be a leader, Paul would say to Timothy, his protege, who's going to be taken over church, if you want to be a leader, you need to live a life that's above reproach. You need to be setting an example for others, for outsiders, for those that are looking at you. Whatever the right thing is, you'll never regret doing it. Whatever God is calling you to do to be above reproach, you'll never regret doing it. Sometimes, especially in the world we live in right now, doing the right thing might out you. You might lose a job. You might lose friends. You might lose respect from some people. But doing the right thing long term you never regret following the commands of Jesus and doing what Jesus says. Verse 11, Paul continues. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. It's not healthy for men or for women to be idle. Like it always shocks me when I get on Facebook and there's people all about everyone else's business and they'll post an essay on something. And I remember, like, I'll, I'll look at Facebook and some of these and I'll read them and I'll go, I want to tell you how wrong you are, but if that were to happen, you would probably respond and I'd have to re-engage. I don't have the time for this. I don't, do you ever feel that when you're on Facebook, you look at some people and go, how do you have the time for that? Idleness isn't great. Idleness gives opportunity for us to be about everyone else's business. If you don't have a business of your own that you can be involved in and engaged with, it leaves a lot of opportunity for you to be a busybody engaged in everyone else's business and then wanting to blow everything else. I think that's a lot of the social media issue. There's a lot of people who don't have anything else going on right now. A lot of people are at home. A lot of people aren't working and they have a lot of opportunity to engage in things that probably isn't the best for them. Paul is warning, hey, don't be idle people. Be busy about something. Don't be busybodies. Farmers have this saying that they say, when the mule is kicking, it's not working. And when it's working, it's not kicking. There's a lot of people right now who are doing a whole lot of kicking and a whole lot of not working. And that kind of attitude, that kind of behavior, it's unproductive. And I don't think anyone wants to be on that team. I don't think it sheds great light on Christians who are, are doing that. I have a 17-year-old who goes to our high school group who said, Justin, I need a job. I go, cool, man. Okay, well, you can go literally anywhere and get a job right now. He goes, well, he's 17. He's never had a job. Just got his license. He goes, I couldn't work in fast food or anything because it'd be a waste of my talents. I go, bro, <laughs> you list for me those talents that are keeping you from working at Dairy Queen. Because I'll tell you, I worked at Dairy Queen for two years that gave me some of the best learning experience of my life. When I was in high school, learning at, working at a fast food restaurant gave me life experience and lessons that I still lean back on and have learned from and have grown from. 
You know, I, <laughs> the Bible tells us that he who's faithful in a little, he's going to be faithful in much. Whatever's in front of you, rather than being a complaining person, rather than being a frustrated person, what if we were just faithful in the things that God has brought to us, not being worried about all the other things that people are doing or not doing, and just saying, okay, God, I'm going to do this thing that you've laid out for me really, really well. I'm going to put my whole effort, my whole mind, my whole heart about it. I'm not going to have to worry about my neighbors or someone else's business. I could just worry about this. Well, maybe your workplace is terrible, though. Maybe you, you hate your workplace. What if you're the only light in that workplace and Jesus has you there for that exact reason? Maybe it's time to partner with God in your workplace, which can be really hard. And so I think that's why Paul, he follows with the next verse that says, as for you, brothers, <clears throat> do not grow weary in doing good. Paul repeats this in other letters. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You're called to occupy. Don't be surprised when the enemy tries to stand firm. Don't be surprised when the enemy tries to push back. Don't be surprised when the gates of hell seem like they're present. You have to stay strong. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Well, how do you stay strong? How do you not grow weary in well-doing? I think one of the things you always see with Paul is he always had a buddy with him. He always talked about, as for us, as you saw us doing, as you saw me and my guys. Hey, Timothy just got back and he told me all about what you're doing. He had a partner. He's got a crew. If, you may know this. If you work out a lot, that if you have a gym buddy, you end up lifting more weight, doing higher repetitions. You end up getting fitter faster. You end up staying more on track with your diet because you have another person saying, hey, we got to go today. Hey, make sure you're eating that thing I told you to eat. Hey, make sure you do this stuff but it's got to be a good gym partner. My sister, like I've shared before, she won a bodybuilding contest at one point. And my brother and I were like, Sarah, we would love to go to the gym with you. And she goes, great, come. My brother's the funniest person that's ever existed. So if you haven't met him yet, you're missing out. So we go to the gym with my sister. There's only six people in there besides us. And so my brother and I are on a different weightlifting regimen than my sister, because she's a girl and we can lift more. And <laughs> all right. And uh, so we're looking at, okay, so it says that we need to do 10 hammer curls. My brother goes, I can't do 10 hammer curls. I go, yes, you can. We're men. And he goes, okay. So he gets down, he grabs the weight. One, two, and he's loud. Like this is, this is a planet fitness. You're not allowed to be loud. He's a loud person. Cabots are loud. So he goes, three, four, he puts it down. And I'm like, dude, come on. And he stands up and he walks towards the mirror to where he's just looking at himself in the eyes. And he goes, I hate you. <laughs> and the person working next to him drops his weight laughing. My sister can't work out anymore. She goes, I can't go to the gym with you guys anymore. Like, I can't get anything done when you are here. You got to have a partner who's got the same mind as you, the same goal as you, who wants to see God's kingdom move, who's, who's going to come with you together and say, okay, let's tackle this together. Maybe you don't meet at the same place, but you meet up during the week and you, you set some goals. Okay, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Make sure you pray for your spouse. Make sure that ask me to pray for my spouse. I'm going to pray for your kids. Hey, this week, let's go through Romans together. Okay. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Get a partner and set some goals. Someone who's hungry, someone who's, who wants to just be on fire about the Lord. 
That's why in Hebrews it says, don't forsake the assembly of God's people because it's so important for us to continuously be around people who are on fire for the Lord, who want to get fired up about what Jesus is doing. If you look all through God's word, you always see partners. You have Moses and Joshua. You have Elijah and Elisha. You have Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus. You have Jesus and his crew of 12. In the hardest, darkest part of Jesus's life, he reaches out to his crew and say, hey, will you come with me? I need you. Come over here. Come with me while I go pray. If Jesus needed a crew around him in really hard times, how much more are you and I going to need a partner with us when things are rough? We need people around us who are going to push us, keep us accountable, sharpen us, encourage us, who are going to recognize when there's stuff going wrong in our life and say, dude, come on, cut that out. We're better than that. Jesus has called you to so much more than that. Don't grow weary in well-doing. And so verse 14, as we're wrapping up, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There has to be a line. There has to be boundaries and a line where you say, I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me anymore. Christians are supposed to be crazy forgiving and exceedingly generous, absolutely. But Paul is saying for this crew, don't allow yourself to be a victim. Establish boundaries and keep those boundaries. Do you know how healthy boundaries are? I have some of the wildest children in the world in the kids' wing. It's fascinating. And because here's what's really fascinating they come and they'll blow up an entire classroom. Parents will be like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, it's fine. Because by week five, they're going to be great. Because they'll be wild at home and they'll be wild in the car and they'll be wild in the hallway. But when they come into the classroom, there's boundaries, there's expectations, there's a plan, there's a schedule. Here's what we do, here's what we don't do. And the kids just respond to it. And because they know this is safe, I know what the expectations are, I know what the boundaries are, I know how much fun I can have before the game can't be fun anymore. And the kids thrive in it. Boundaries are so healthy. Your kids need them. Everyone needs them. Everyone needs to know, here's the line where things aren't cool anymore. Here's the, that's what wrestling is with kids. It's actually so important that, that dads wrestle with their boys because it shows their boys how far they're allowed to go in play before the play stops being play. You know, they get to find out, how hard can I hit before the game has to stop? What, what can I do before, I, how, how far can I bend before I get hurt and go, that, that's not fun. I can't do that to another kid. Boundaries are so important. They find that through play, but they also find that from saying, okay, here's what we don't do. And so Paul is establishing a boundary and he's establishing a consequence. If they cross that boundary, here's what we're going to do. You distance yourself from that person. You don't regard him as an enemy, but you warn him as a brother. In verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. In Matthew 5, 9, peacemakers are called children of God. That there's something really blessed about being someone of peace. And what I have always grown up thinking, what society has taught, is the way that you get peace is by having an exceeding amount of money in your bank account or having gone to a most beautiful and incredible place. That, that's where peace is found. And all I know is I could look at someone like Jeff Bezos, 
who's got more money than anyone else in the world, who just had a really nasty, gnarly divorce and then did everything that he could to leave the planet, and he did. And in all that stuff, I'm looking at his life going, that guy doesn't have peace. He doesn't have peace anywhere in his life. Where do you get peace from? Ephesians would say, Jesus is our peace, that he's the Lord of peace and the source of all of our peace, that money, that going to a special place cannot give it to you, only Jesus can. So verse 17, we only got two left. Your children are calling for you. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Paul is saying, if you get another letter saying anything else, compare it to this letter. This is how I write. You can just imagine that. I'm signing it with my signature. I'm putting my seal on it. Don't listen to the other stuff. At verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's such a familiar phrase for you and I as Christians to say, but it's so fascinating to me that 25 years before this letter would have been written, the name Jesus would not have been known anywhere except for a small area in northern Palestine. And then 25 years later, there would be a group of people in a very renowned city in Macedonia, a very important city, who would look at Jesus as God and as king and as the source of all peace and the one that you get grace from. Grace is the powerful love of the one true God, that this Jesus of Nazareth, that he would be God, that he would be king. This same Jesus, same king, same Lord is ready to pour out grace on you and me, our community, our, our town, our nation, our world, all he requires is that God's people respond to him, respond to his love and his faithfulness with their own love and faithfulness. And so for me, this week, the thing that's been really pushed on me is my prayer life. I want to see my prayer life transformed. If I believe what Jesus says, if I truly believe what Jesus says about prayer, if I think Jesus was serious about what he said about prayer, how could I not be serious about prayer? So this week, will you join me? Will you pray for your spouse when you go to work? As your spouse goes to work, will you pray for him or her? Or stays with the kids, will you pray for them to have patience with the kids, long-suffering with the kids, to, to keep boundaries in love and in grace and in mercy? Will you pray for your kids as they go to school, for the leaders that are over our town and our nation? Will you pray for your church? Will you pray for the kids that go here, for the people who work here? And then pray that you would have eyes to see all that God is doing and be willing and ready to watch our God work. And if God wants to use you, say, okay, Jesus, I'm in. I want to see your kingdom come today. So Jesus, we are so thankful to be called your people. We're so thankful that we get to approach God not as a distant force or as a boss or, or how any other religion can put approach to God, but we can approach the creator God as our father, as a child. So Jesus, help us to see things the way you see things. 
Break our heart for the things that break yours. Help us to have eyes to see the stuff that you're doing in this community so that our faith would be built up so that we could pray bigger prayers, so we could pray more boldly, so that we could see you move even greater, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.